Welcome to the Vespasian Warner Public Library District podcast. Anywhere that somewhere has its scandals, controversies, and tidbits of notoriety. Even a town like Clinton, Illinois has its history of skeletons. This episode features the story of Patsy Devine, the only man known to be publicly executed in Clinton. On a warm, moonlit August evening in 1879, prominent Bloomington citizen Aaron Goodfellow left a friend's residence and walked home. A respected and well-liked man, he thought it was a joke when two men stopped him a half-block from his home, and one of them demanded that he put up his hands or he'd shoot him. However, it was no joke, and the pistol the man brandished was very real. Mr. Goodfellow fought with the man who shot him in the jaw. Despite his injury, he continued to wrestle with him until he was shot again, this time in the side by the man's partner. This would prove to be the mortal wound. The shots attracted the attention of others in the neighborhood, and the two men fled without taking anything from their victim. Meanwhile, Mr. Goodfellow was carried home, where he succumbed to his wounds the next morning, but not before giving a detailed description of what happened and of his attackers. Suspicion immediately fell on two men who fit Mr. Goodfellow's description, noted thugs as they were called later in the papers, who had been in Bloomington for several days, Harry Williams and Patsy Devine. It was believed that Mr. Goodfellow wasn't the man that Harry Williams and Patsy Devine had intended to rob that night, instead hoping to waylay a prominent railroad official who was known to carry an expensive gold watch coveted by one of the men and large sums of money. From Mr. Goodfellow's account of what occurred that night, it was believed that Harry Williams fired the first shot that hit Mr. Goodfellow in the jaw, and Patsy Devine was the man who fired the fatal shot to Mr. Goodfellow's side. Both men fled the scene, and Harry Williams was never apprehended for the crime. Patsy Devine, however, escaped first to Odell and then to Alton before fleeing east where he was ultimately captured in Port Jarvis, New York, months later. Though Devine maintained that he'd left Bloomington the morning of the murder, Numerous witnesses placed both Devine and Williams in Bloomington near the scene of the crime, including a group of children who'd seen them during the day, a man who'd bumped into Devine and another man in the park that evening, two women who swore they saw the men together not long before the murder, another man by the name of Colonel Johnson who identified Devine because he'd at first mistook him for a friend and it was only when Devine looked at him that he realized he was mistaken, and finally... Several of Devine's own acquaintances swore that he was in Bloomington until late that evening. Further, a handkerchief spattered with blood was found near the crime scene and was identified as one that had been given to Williams by a local sex worker. As far as the prosecution was concerned, the evidence was overwhelming. And so, Patsy Devine was charged with murder and put on trial. By his own admission a career criminal, it's no surprise that Patsy Devine would lie about some aspects of his life. Claiming to be 25 years old and born in Cincinnati, his mother later testified that Patsy was over 30 and had been born in Ireland as Thomas Coyne, named for his father who died when Patsy was six months old. He and his mother immigrated to America where she later married a man by the name of Patrick Devine and had three more children before he too died. Patsy boasted that he'd begun his life of crime at eight years old, starting with petty thefts and then moving on to burglary. 
He'd served two years in the Illinois Reform School, a term in the Indiana Penitentiary, and nearly three years in Missouri for robbing a man in a saloon in St. Louis. It was after this last imprisonment that Patsy found his way to Bloomington. But Aaron Goodfellow was not the first man Patsy Devine was supposed to have murdered. According to a man named Alan S. Elliott, when Patsy was, quote, a full-grown boy, he had an altercation with a young man named Bernard Winger while they were working together. Though it appeared that the situation had cooled off, on the walk home, Patsy struck Winger on the head with a rock, hit him while he was down, and then left him there by the side of the road. Winger came to early the next morning and made it home, giving his account of what happened before ultimately dying of his injuries two days later. Meanwhile, Patsy fled the state, and his mother and siblings soon followed him west, settling in Illinois, the very state Patsy would ultimately be executed in. Due to the notoriety of the case, the trial was moved to DeWitt County. There, on Monday, December 21, 1880, the first Patsy Devine case began. With Judge Burr presiding, the evidence from both sides had been presented by the next Wednesday, and the closing arguments concluded on Thursday. The case was then given to the jury, who returned with a verdict a mere eight hours later. They found Patsy Devine guilty of murdering Aaron Goodfellow, and Judge Burr sentenced him to die by hanging on Friday, January 14, 1881. Patsy seemed unaffected by the trial and the verdict, addressing the court after the sentence was pronounced to say that he was a lifelong thief, but he was innocent of this crime. Patsy's attorneys, in a bid to save their client from the gallows, found a technicality in the proceedings, and as such, Patsy Devine was granted a new trial, which began on April 4, 1882, with Judge Lacey presiding. Though a couple of the prosecution's witnesses had died since the first trial and another had relocated and couldn't be found, the conclusion was the same. Patsy Devine was again found guilty and was again sentenced to death. Another appeal by Devine's lawyers proved ineffective and his fate was sealed. Patsy Devine would hang on May 12, 1882. This time, Patsy didn't take the news of his doom well, and he threatened to commit suicide rather than be executed. To prevent this, Sheriff Weedman, who'd been in charge of the prisoner and would in the end oversee the man's execution, had Patsy removed from his cell, given new clothes, and had his cell thoroughly searched. There, guards found a chair leg which had been fashioned into a club, with a piece of old iron poker tied to the end of it with a bit of a blanket. He'd also torn the brass from a harmonica and fashioned another weapon from it and they found a bit of broken bottle which they suspected he'd used to kill himself if it came down to it. All of the items were confiscated, and the sheriff enlisted four men as a special guard for Patsy, two of them being stationed in the cell with him at all times. While waiting his final moment, Patsy Devine entertained the guards with funny stories, songs, and a bit of jig dancing. Sheriff Weedman saw to it that he was well-fed and given cigars, and the sheriff's wife even managed to sneak him in some whiskey from time to time. It was during this time that Patsy consented to have his photograph taken. A man named Mr. Pease took the picture with the idea that copies would be made and sold to the crowd that would surely gather for his execution, with half of the money going to Patsy's mother. However, due to the damp weather, only a few prints could be made, 
and none are known to remain in existence. In his last hours, Father Weldon and Father Grogan from Bloomington visited Patsy, and deciding that he'd like to die a good Catholic, he made a lengthy confession, and he was then given the Holy Eucharist. The morning of May 12, 1882, Patsy Devine was led into the debtor's room in the DeWitt County Jail where the gallows had been built. A platform had been installed with a trap door. Directly beneath it, the flooring had been taken up so the body would be able to drop straight through at a sufficient length to ensure a quick death. Patsy Devine, dressed in a new black suit, remained stoic as he was led up onto the platform. He thanked the sheriff, the sheriff's family, and the guards for their kindness, and proclaimed his innocence for the last time. Once the noose and black hood had been secured, the trap was sprung. Twenty-five minutes later, the body was cut down, and Patsy Devine was declared dead. His body was then taken to the courthouse, where it was laid out for a public viewing. Hundreds showed up, mostly out of curiosity and because the rain that day had kept them out of the fields. Though Patsy had wanted his body to be sent to his mother in Alton, his sister denied the request. He was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Clinton, a rare potter's grave with a headstone, the only known man to be publicly executed in Clinton, Illinois. Two curious asides to the Patsy Devine story. Such was the publicity of the execution of Patsy Devine that businesses used it as an advertising ploy. A Clinton merchant by the name of Drew Inman used it in an advertisement for his store, and the ad in part reads, Patsy is hanged, but the doom of Divine is not more certain than the doom of high prices in Clinton. Another store, Woodward's Boots and Shoes, ran an ad that claimed that Patsy Divine made a full confession that he and Harry Williams were guilty, but he asked to be allowed to find Williams who could clear him, and he also, quote, intimated that the place to buy Boots and Shoes was at Woodward's. Patsy Devine also had quite an admirer while he was incarcerated during trial and awaiting execution in Clinton. A local girl by the name of Lizzie Barton took a fancy to Patsy, and she spent time with him there, both as a visitor and an inmate. It seems that the girl from a family of horse thieves had no trouble committing petty crimes in order to get herself locked up with Patsy. When authorities realized her motives, she was moved to Wapella. In what is assumed to be retaliation and also a ploy to be sent back to Clinton, she set fire to the facility there. She was then sent to Joliet for the remainder of her sentence. That a woman could be so taken with Patsy Devine doesn't come as too much of a surprise since the man himself claimed that he had four wives, including one he married in Muncie, Indiana, while fleeing after Aaron Goodfellow's murder. While incarcerated in the Bloomington jail, Patsy composed a poem which provides a fitting conclusion to his story. Patsy's poem. While sitting in this silent chamber and nothing else to do, I thought I would compose a song and write it, friends, for you. I am not much of a poet, though I'll do the best I can, to try to keep my courage up and bear it like a man. I was born in Cincinnati and in Ohio State. Little did I think, my friends, I would ever meet such a fate. I was brought up by honest parents who thought the world of me, and this is the first I've been deprived of liberty. 
It was on the 4th of August in 1879. From house to house the news was spread that Aaron Goodfellow had been shot, and soon he would be dead. Suspicion pointed toward me. They rushed upon their prey, and I was forced to prison to await my trial day. They took me to the station house, from there to the county jail, where iron bars surrounded me. They are my troubles to bewail. I never did the cruel deed. God knows I'm not to blame, although I have been convicted and must suffer all the shame. A word to my old mother and my sisters, kind and true. Remember I'm innocent, though I must part from you. Any of you, my kind relations, I know you wish me well, but my feelings at this moment no human tongue can tell. Before I close this rhyme, I'll not forget to mention my good jailer, Mr. Franks. And now, my kind friends, tis all that I can do in sending this my song to bid you all adieu. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the story of Patsy Devine. For more information about the Vespasian Warner Public Library District, please go to vwarner.org.